There's a joke I used to tell. You can tell where God lives. Uh, God lives in China. And people say, well, how do you, well, that's, that's near a sacrilege. Why are you saying that? Well, everything's made in China, and God made everything. So that was a dad joke. That's definitely a dad joke. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to an exciting, maybe, second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. Isn't that crazy? I didn't say your name this time. You got to that say was good. That was good of you to not say my name. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. We had a couple of emails come in with good questions. Um, we've got one from Alan. Uh, they, Alan says, Jeff, Jake, I need to upgrade my truck to a three-quarter ton. Well, just put some dirt in the back. It'll make it heavier. That's the cheapest way to do it. If you really want to go up and wait, you just add more weight. That you Just put some something heavy in it. Really cheap. You can just use a shovel or something. No, I know what you mean. Um, he said, I noticed uh, my truck's value has increased considerably. But there doesn't seem to be a lot of new trucks on the lots. Have That's new, an understatement. Yeah. Have new trucks increased, prices increased like the used vehicles? Well, you have put your thumb directly on it. You are uh, right on the point. The reason why your truck's value has increased is because there are not a lot of new trucks on the lots. So it leads people to look around for buying used vehicle. If you can find a new truck, and you're able to get it, the prices have not gone up anywhere near as much as the used vehicles. It is possible now, if after owning a car for two years, to turn around and sell it at a profit, which is not the usual uh, set of circumstances. It is usually you drive it off the lot, it is immediately worth a lot less than you paid for it. Uh, this is not the case now because we're having trouble getting new trucks on there. If you can find a new truck... And sell your old truck, you may wind up with a good deal because the prices on the new ones are not going up as fast. But you have to be able to find the new truck. That, that's the deal. Same thing is true on houses. Yeah. Because you want to sell a house, it's a great time to sell a house. You get a great price, but then finding a reasonable price house you want to live in yeah. can be a real challenge. And again, this is not the new, usual set of circumstances. When you drive a house off the lot, it generally loses a lot of value because it, does. it collapses all over the place and it's just a mess. Well, it all depends on what kind of house you have. If you're a mobile home, I guess, but you're driving that off the lot still, yeah, we're trying to make jokes. Well, actually, I was looking at motorhomes and apparently at least some brands of motorhomes that are in short supply uh, are selling today for more than they were priced at new, new yeah. three or four years ago. Because uh, And we've got some other questions. Suzanne has a question on that. She's actually got some pretty good stuff. Uh, a question about the concept of why people aren't coming back to work as quickly as they were expected to. And there's lots of reasons, so a lot of supply chain reasons for that, the supply chain being supply to labor. Um, but she makes a very good point, is that a lot of people got used to living off of less they downsized, they got an RV instead of a house, and they can subsist off of a lot less. 
less as well. That's not totally across the board, but it is a factor. Uh, there's lots of data saying that people over the age of 50 have been doing this. They've gotten, uh, in a lot of cases, they've been paid a lot more during the pandemic and they got to step away from the office and be working remotely. And then they look at the prospect of going back into the office to work or into the wherever it is that they might be working to work. And they just don't want to. And they realize that they've got enough saved up and they've done well in the market in the last year. And so they say, I'm going to retire. Well, it also affects people that were in tech. Uh, it's extremely affecting people that are working around people in tech uh, in that there are jobs that may simply not come back. There was a great deal of catering being supplied to tech workers at these big campuses all over the place because the tech workers are in high demand. And so they said, we're going to provide your meals for you and uh, you just sit and relax and everything will be taken care of. Well, when they're working from home, those caterers got laid off. And it looks like coming back, at least in the tech world, maybe as much as half of the people won't be coming back to that normal situation that they're going to go into, they're calling it hybrid, hybrid work environment. Hybrid sounds like something that somebody put the wrong kind of DNA into something else and there's a beast involved. That's a lot more exciting than wearing your pajamas at home. At one point, wearing your pajamas at home while working was a pretty exciting thing. It's not so exciting these days. So the hybrid work environment is part of the reason why there's supply chain issues where people are coming back to work. Those caterers, you're probably only going to need half of them if they're supplying for half the people that they used to in the new hybrid structure. So where do they go? Well, those folks still have to eat. Now you got to figure out how to get them food, but they're less likely to pay for it at home than because the company's not going to pay for it for them. You can see where this is going. One of the labor statistics that's monitored by the Labor Department is the quit ratio. People who have not been laid off, they just quit work. And there's a trend showing up in the quit ratio, and that's people who've been, who've been working from home and asked, and they're told, you got to come back to work now? And they say, nope, nope, I quit. Yeah, especially in the tech industry, it's really easy to say no to that because they're in demand and somebody else will hire them. Now, having said that, there's a state in the country that is not, that's not always the case. Remote work for, for a national chain or a national business. A lot of companies are including a little segment saying, unless you work, unless you're living in Colorado, you're not, this job listing is not for you if you live in Colorado. And people go, what? Isn't Colorado like a tech state now? Denver is like a, a version of Austin and San Francisco and Portland. They're trying to be more tech related. The Colorado legislature passed a law last year. It went into effect at the beginning of this year that said if you're offering a listing uh, for a job in Colorado, you have to put the pay, the amount of pay on there. And a lot of the national companies are saying, well, we don't want to list what the pay is. That can cause all kinds of upset where somebody says I'm not getting paid as much as the new hire and I've been here for 13 years. Uh, that's a tricky subject. Uh, and it's, you're getting, there's, there's a lot of culture that has to change for that to work well. There are still obviously a lot of people with jobs in Colorado. Don't get me wrong, 
But it goes back to what we were talking a little bit on the end of last hour about borders being significant. If you're hiring someone and you're listing their position and they come to work for you and they live in Colorado, all of your listings now have to include the prices that people will get paid. It's just a fascinating little thing. We also have another question here from Marty. Will stocks go higher with inflation? All right. We will not answer that one directly because we're talking about the future there. Nobody knows what the future holds. And if you ask somebody, what's the light? Will there be a pandemic? If you'd asked them in 2019, they might have gotten a weird response to that. Probably not. No, no, we haven't had one for a long time. When we look at history, however, the asset class that does seem to keep up with inflation the best out of all asset classes, people talk about gold and say it's a good inflation hedge. Stocks, equities, ownership of companies and their valuations tends to be the thing that keeps up with inflation the best. The growth tends to be above inflation uh, if, if they're growing. Now, obviously, that requires people to be well-diversified across a large swath because one stock, one company may go out of business because of inflation. So it goes back to a much broader answer than the question. It's a very, very targeted question, and it's a good one. Presuming that you're well-diversified throughout history, that's been the best place to be. The stock market's been the best place to be to uh, weather inflation hits, that you get growth above that throughout history. I think that's a pretty decent one. We got another question. While we're, so these four questions are coming in. We must have done something really boring last hour that people are like, ah, we got to get some questions to these guys. Ah, and you didn't get this one either. Nope, they this, don't like me. This is from Catherine. Uh, now that the price of lumber has dropped, when can we expect to see the drop at the big lumber or the big box lumber stores such as Home Depot or Lowe's or lumber yards? That's an excellent question. There's a lag, just like it's easier to see when you're talking about oil and gas, because when we talk about oil prices, West Texas Intermediate up at $71 a barrel, and you look at the price of gas. Well, it's gone up, but it's not that far up. The, the store that purchased that gas to sell it to you, or Home Depot purchasing the lumber to sell it to you, had to buy it at the price that was available when they bought it, not when you bought it. So uh, part of the reason that the gas stations that have the most pumps, the most places where you can pull in and add gas tend to have the lowest prices is because they go through that purchased amount very quickly. A lot of people go to, to get gas there, so they buy up the gas, and the new gas gets set at the new price. The, it, it's going to depend on which Home Depot and which Lowe's and which lumber yards. The ones with the highest turnover will tend to have the lower prices sooner. So just if, if you're looking around, Home Depot doesn't set the price on its products across the country the same. If you look in uh, a local Home Depot and you see a price, 
go online. It's worth going online and checking the price at a different store or actually going to the different store. And what you'll find is sometimes significant difference in prices from one store to the other because that store bought it at a higher price and it hasn't sold it all. Or maybe it's a, and this is, this is something that I was telling people when lumber prices were going up very fast is that they should look around for less well-used lumber yards that still had lumber that they purchased at the lower price because they tend to still have the ability to sell it there. Now is not the time to go to those lumber yards because they're going to have the, the higher price now. Did that make any sense or was that hard to follow? I, I followed you. Okay. Yeah. So it, the more recently the item that's being sold was purchased by the store, the more likely those prices are going to match the overall market when we're talking about that stuff. But, you know, if you think about this, this is, this is part of the reason why in the early 2000s, Dell, the company, the computer company, took off and left a lot of the other computer companies behind is because back then Circuit City and Best Buy and the big box kind of computer technology stores were selling their computers. And they would buy a fully built computer at whatever the price was, and they would stock it on their shelf. And you had to pay the price with a markup of whatever they paid for that computer. Where Dell was saying, we'll put the parts together based on today's prices for those parts. We'll package it up and we'll send it to you. And they were able to do it at much lower cost because those parts were worth, were being created better, better supply issues, being manufactured in more numbers, so the prices were going down. That's kind of what led us, the Dell and Walmart and a lot of the other big names from that era, are what led us to the supply chain issues that we're looking at today, and that you can't really compete with an on-the-shelf item when the new parts that you're trying to buy have jumped up in price drastically. And that was kind of a long and convoluted rabbit Warren kind of an answer to a really simple question of when should we expect the big box lumber stores prices to be representing with that drop. Um, hopefully it was a, an effective answer though, that talks about more of why it happens than when it happens. Uh, this is one of those things that it's important if you're concerned and would like to support local businesses, you should be aware of that. Their price flexibility is less than a big store because Home Depot can has some ability to a big ability to buy in bulk across the board. So their prices tend to be better than a little local lumber store that has to buy based on whatever they negotiate on their own. So in, in times like this, the local folks prices tend to be higher than the big chains it might still be worth buying there if you have a relationship. There. That was a long answer. Really, really simple question, and I think I answered it, maybe. Yep. Yeah. You answered, yeah, I think you answered it nearly to that. Hey, little piece of news. We follow the Moody's Analytics and CNN Business Back to Normal Index, yep. which is, it measures a whole lot of stuff in the economy, stuff being an economics term. And it determines about at 100% we'll be back to normal on the trend line that we would have followed had there been no pandemic. And this last week, uh, the index went to 92.5. 
that's it's ninety two point five percent of what we were right before. That's what that means. And it's interesting ninety two point five. Um, first off, it indicates that we're getting very very close to full recovery to where we would have been had there been no pandemic. Now it's not back to the same level as twenty nineteen. That's back to where we would have been had we continued to grow through twenty twenty. Because the GDP of the United States is almost certainly higher now than it was. Well, it is higher now than it was before. It actually, with the first quarter, it went up higher than it was before, before the pandemic. But we're actually, at this point, almost certainly above the trend line. So the GDP has grown faster than the back-to-normal index, which is kind of interesting. And that measures, that's a, a measure of that is productivity. American workers have boosted their productivity in the last 12 months by about 4.5%, which doesn't sound like a lot. But that basically means, let's round it to 5%. That means that 19 workers can do now what 20 workers did in, in 2020, the beginning of 2020, which is very unusual. We've had 1% and 2% growth in productivity for a long time. A lot of that has to do with the 15% rate of investment that businesses are putting into automation, and a lot of it has to do with just simply working smarter using software. There's been a tremendous increase in software investment. These are the kinds of things that you see typically at the bottom of a recession. You don't see it in the middle of a recovery. We saw it in uh, 2002, 2003. We saw it again in 2009. As, as the economy hits bottom, we see this tremendous surge in companies that have cash and have the ability to borrow. They, they make a tremendous surge in investment in themselves, which leads to the boom that follows because in pr productivity increases. We're actually seeing that, shoot, a year into the recovery. At this point, we're seeing this tremendous growth, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it's slacking off. More, and, and I'm being maybe unrealistically optimistic, but I'm very, very optimistic about the economy. And I think this type of investment, this type of economy that we see right here could easily propel us for up to a decade. In other words, we could go through the, the 2020s on the momentum of what's going on here, and we haven't even gotten started good yet covered that really well. Um, when we talk about, is this sustainable? Because just a few minutes ago, I was talking about how retail sales and uh, food services, restaurants and so on, are up at a level that's probably not sustainable. Probably. <laughs> probably being very, very unlikely that this, this can continue. You can't spend 20% more than what we spent over the last five years every day on this sort of thing. There's a pent-up demand that's being used there. Uh, this is an area of the economy that's really booming. We can't expect that to be sustained. There's other portions of the economy where we can see really sustainable growth. You mentioned this on business investments. We've, we've got supply chain issues all over the place. Business investment is way up on all kinds of stuff that they use to get better at building and creating the stuff that you want to buy, which long-term leads to lower prices. Long-term leads to the, a better ability to make more of those things. That's sustainable. So that business investment side of things means that it's likely that people will get paid more in the future that work there because they'll be selling more stuff, whatever the thing is that they're making, that the business investment is increasing. Uh, software production on 
being more efficient at doing the things that you're already doing. That's something that boomed all the way through the pandemic and is continuing to boom and probably will continue into the future. There's a, a new area of software that's come out because of the pandemic. It's not like it's come out. It's just It's become big enough to be worth mentioning. And that's called, it's the low code or no code development where what was promised for, for years and years and years on web pages is that you'd just be able to drag and drop and make it look whatever you want. That's never actually occurred. Uh, be complicated to make a web page. But there's a lot of other areas that are making a, a, an intro, introduction into the scene what would normally be done by an IT department. Microsoft is, is pushing really hard on this. Apple's pushing hard on this. Google, Alphabet, they're, they're all kind of moving into an area of how do we make it easier for people to develop a custom platform, a custom piece of software without having to learn software language? Uh, how do we make it so that you can read the data that you have across multiple areas? It's still complicated, but it's getting simpler. When we, uh, when we look at this kind of across the board on business spending in that area, if you as a worker, uh, you, whatever it is that you're doing, have the ability to set up a workplace that works best for you, whether that's a desk or a piece of software, uh, if you're a carpenter, it would be a jig to make something faster, to cut the same size board every time. You just use this jig really fast. You don't have to measure it every time. That low-code new software development area is amazing. It means that we're going to have productivity increases probably like we haven't seen in several decades since the birth of the internet when we had this big jump in productivity. And we're, we're definitely seeing that. What was the number that you quoted last week? 5% productivity? 4.5. 4.5% in, increase in productivity. That is, as far as we're concerned, that's almost off the charts. The fact that you could increase your productivity by that much, it, it's hard as to, to explain this to non-economists, but... The simplest approach is even at a lower level than supply and demand, the growth of an economy is based on two things. Demographics, that's how educated the population is, what's the age of the population, how are they going to work, that sort of thing, and productivity. Demographics and productivity are it. I mean, you can build supply and demand on top of that because productivity and demographics are what determines supply and demand. Our productivity numbers are going up at rates that are almost absurd when you're talking about a industrialized nation. That's fantastic. That's sustainable. That's the sort of thing that leads to better things in the future. That leads to a growing economy. We're not going to go out to eat every meal for the rest of our lives. That's not sustainable. Some people do that. Some people do that. And, some, and more people have done it recently because they haven't been able to do it at all. So they're like, I'm just going to eat out all the time. At some point when they've, added, they've upgraded their truck to a higher weight capacity, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> they say, I'm not going to eat at a restaurant every, every meal. And, and that's important to know what's sustainable and what isn't. 
It's an interesting point. We've mentioned it before, but it's critical to, 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 to be, pay attention to this. China's GDP has historically dropped or grown faster than that of the United States. Or at least for the last 50 years or so, yeah. They're a developing country. They have a lot of people, and their GDP is growing really fast as they switch from being a very animal-oriented agricultural nation to an industrial nation. This year, it's pretty clear, and, it, and, and this is our GDP will grow faster than that of China's. Well, that's, that is earth-shaking. China's GDP is dropping back. Matter of fact, they're, they're considering, matter of fact, they officially, no, no, officially announced that they're considering dropping all birth control policies yeah. by 2025. They've gone up to three children authorized, and they're going to drop. You can have many children as you want to. They realize they've got a demographic problem. They've got an infrastructure problem. We've talked about this in the past. We're kind of terrified of Japan in the United States. We're kind of terrified of their industrial might, of their retail might, of the fact that we need them so badly to make things. And and that we think that and they're very competitive with us. They have a different system. They're not they're an autocracy. We're a democracy. But long term, they're in trouble, and they know they're in trouble. When they finally admit that the one-child policy wasn't a good idea, and the two-child policy is probably not a good idea, and the three-child policy is still probably not a good idea, when they finally reckon when the, when the Chinese finally acknowledge that they have a problem, believe me, it's a big problem by the time they acknowledge it. Yeah. Because they don't like They're, to acknowledge that there's any problem. They would much rather say there's not. So the point is, the United States is long. Now, this is going to be, this may irritate some people. I'm sorry. As long as we accept qualified immigrants and don't try to become xenophobic and let people into the United States who can get here, the mere fact that they've worked hard to get here gives them an edge over the rest of the population that lethargically stayed at home. The people who are coming into the United States and joining a workforce in the United States which is, by the way, all of us, unless you're an American Indian or a Native American, your preference. Well, I mean, at some point there were no people here. It was just deer. Deer. Well, and, we think there's no record playing. Senator, I have no recollection of that. And if a tree fell, we didn't know about it. So. Yeah, but yeah, the deer did. The deer did. Yeah. But the point is that we have immigration has made this country and we need to keep it going. One of the things that works very well for the United States is we have this selective process and that if you're willing to leave everything behind and come to the United States, you're probably a little more energetic and a little more enthusiastic about living than people who didn't. But if we can keep this up, if we can keep up the momentum that we've developed during this pandemic, particularly that we're seeing this year, we have the potential to not, not only be larger than China, which we are economically, but to stay larger than China. China is going to grow. China is doing wonderful things. But at some point, we'll need to get along with them. It'll be an interesting, interesting, there's an interesting dichotomy in the world. This is, this is kind of not much of a segue, but, good, but it ties into what I was just saying. There are two major governments in the world that are autocracies. Wow. Russia and China. Major government. Major government. I mean, Turkey would be falling into that category now. And there's a, there's yeah, a lot of others, Turkey, but... Turkey doesn't have nuclear weapons and the ability to damage the United States. That's true. At least not directly. So these... And there's a battle of philosophies going on. And hopefully we can maintain our side of the philosophy and maintain that democracy works, maintain that letting people come in works. By the way... Nobody apparently wants to move to Russia, and the Chinese just don't allow anybody to move there. I don't think any—I don't know if anybody really would want to move. Both of them want the people want to leave there, 
people want to come into the United States because we have a good system. And we now have a growth in our economy like something we haven't seen since Ronald Reagan. It's a matter of hanging on to that and keeping on. But I think we can. I think there's a great deal of potential for the United States to continue to innovate, to continue to do what it's been doing, to continue to grow at a rate, not necessarily a percentage rate, but a physical rate that will keep it number one in the world. So there's less to be afraid of than a lot of people think of. Yeah. I'll let you talk about something, Fred. I got something else to talk about, but go ahead. Uh, and this, this, I mean, you were just kind of doubling down on what I'd said about demographics and productivity. Russia and China have shrinking populations. They're getting older. Uh, Russia's life expectancy is dropping, dropping fast. Uh, their life expectancy of a male there is like someplace you would see in an, in an undeveloped country. Unless you're Vladimir Putin. Unless you're Vladimir, then you might live forever. Yeah. Um, uh, the the reason is vodka. There's no doubt about that. That's something that people point at and and underline. Every doctor that's looking at demographics there. Well, yeah, the liver disease is one of the top killers there. Guess what happened during the pandemic? Vodka consumption went up. It doesn't usually go back down after it goes up. That's one of the things about products that. Uh, get you to keep using them is that they get you to keep using them is did, did that make sense yeah yeah so russia's got some demographic issues china has some major gem- demographic issues and some major productivity issues china is big when it comes to population this is something that has been in their favor uh when they have been industrializing and when they've been becoming more digital and that you can educate a small percentage of the population and that small percentage is still bigger than everywhere else. Uh, This is a little known fact, but the country with the largest number of fluent English speakers on the planet is China. That's shocking to a lot of people. There are more fluent English speakers in China than in the United States. That is big. They have many, many, many dozens of cities that have more than 10 million people in them each. We have just a few. Their population is huge. It's not something that we can really understand. When they have a demographic issue, the scale of the problem is also huge. And we've talked about this going back lots of time. The typical uh, teenager to to 20, almost 30-year-old, today in China is the only grandchild of all four grandparents. And they are expected to not only take care of their grandparents, but also their parents. So if, you have, if you're making your income, one person, you have six dependents, presuming they all live. That is the state of affairs that's going to be really apparent in the next decade and a half. As that person is no longer in their 20 to 30s, but they're getting up into their 30s, 40s, and 50s, you're talking about someone that's got to maintain an income for all of those dependents. When the education level is still lacking, the reason why China has grown as effectively as it has as an economy is because it's been the industrial capability, the industrial facility, the factory of the planet. 
There's a joke I used to tell. You can tell where God lives. Uh, God lives in China. And people say, well, how do you, well, that's, that's near a sacrilege. Why are you saying that? Well, everything's made in China and God made everything. So that was a dad joke. That's definitely a dad joke. That cannot be sustained in that they're not educating their population fast enough to fill those roles. They are educating a significant portion of their population. But that portion of the population, just like everywhere else on the planet, the more educated tend to have fewer kids. And in China, fewer kids means no kids. <laughs> they're, um, they're investing a tremendous amount of money from the government, particularly in artificial intelligence, too. Right. And hopefully, it's part of the infrastructure bill, I think, that uh, the, the president has proposed, is to increase our spending on that in the United States as a governmental level. And I think we need to do that. I agree. Uh, and And I hope something gets passed in that regard at the federal level in the United States. The infrastructure bill, it's still negotiating. They've been negotiating on this thing for four months. Um, It's likely to be longer in the negotiation. Both sides can agree on a lot of stuff, but both sides are also insistent on things that the other side won't agree on. So getting the... Getting the infrastructure done is more important to me than uh, even if we just say, all right, let's talk about the only the stuff that we can agree on. But then they don't get the opportunity to pass the things that they don't agree on because they all agree on those things. And now you can't negotiate on the things they don't agree on. All I got to say about infrastructure is the I-40 bridge that crosses the Mississippi River in Memphis is closed because it's got a big crack in it. Yeah. And the bridge that the route that the traffic has been rerouted across, which is much more narrow and is slowing things down and costing us literally billions of dollars a month in lost commerce, is 70 years old. Yeah. And I can tell you that something 70 years old can't carry as much as it did when it was new. Right. Like from personal experience. And, and the fact that it's an interstate highway bridge that had to be closed says something about our infrastructure. This is a federal program. This isn't a state-level thing. The bridge has outlived its life expectancy by 15 years now. We just kept using it and deferring maintenance, and now we've got a crack in it. And nobody, by the way, has come up with a solution how to fix that crack. Duct tape. I got a solution yeah. right there. Just a lot of duct tape. Just wrap the bridge. Should be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> some bailing wire. It'll be good. Put some I, don't think you, I, I think your engineering degree was a little bit on the loose side. Yeah, it had more to do with ear than engine ear. There's another small item out there. It's not, it's not a big thing in the long term. Well, maybe it is a big thing in the long term. It's a little thing. The import prices went up 1.1%. I think it was 1.1%. It was about 1% in May, the overall import prices in the United States. Uh, 1.1%. But the important thing to pick up from this is not that the import prices went up 1.1% in the United States. Export prices went up 2.2%. Now, import prices, and this includes oil, are up like 11% over the last year. Export prices are up 17.5% over the last year. Now, there's something very significant in that. Admittedly, prices are going up at that rate. Don't, don't bode well for inflation, but oil is a big driver in that. The important thing to recognize out of this is the stuff made in the United States is worth more than stuff that we're importing. As we export it, people are buying stuff. Admittedly, they don't, we don't sell as much as we – actually, we do sell as much as we buy. It's just we make a product that 
is generally not recognized as a product. It's called the U.S. dollar. Right. And I know there's lots of arguments that say we shouldn't be exporting dollars. We manufacture something that's used in the world and is the reserve currency of the world. Oil is priced in dollars. Metals across the world are priced in dollars. Raw materials are priced in dollars. And you have to have dollars to buy them. The Russians don't like that a bit. They've been selling their dollars, by the way, and it hadn't done done any damage to the dollar. The dollar's been rising steadily, which in the long term may not be a particularly good thing because it makes our export prices go up and makes them less competitive. But that's beside the point. We are in the healthiest economy that I've seen in my over half century of observing the economy professionally. And I can tell you that it just don't get much better than this. Um, and that's an important thing to keep your eye on because bad news sells papers. Yeah. We still have a lot to talk about. There's a lot of stuff running around in Congress and things, but we'll talk about that in a bit. If you'd like to join the conversation, we have emails uh, available at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure, and on the phone with me, I have... Jeff McClure. We are here to discuss finance, the economy, what's happening in Congress when it comes to finance and the economy. Wow, there's a lot going on. So the child tax credit checks should start going out July 15th. Have you been following this? No, I haven't. I'm going to go back in time. Shall we, shall we go back in time? Um, I've got a harp music that I could play somewhere, but I'm not going to do that. We're, going to, we're just going to go back in time. Back to a time when welfare was a big deal, where it, welfare, the U.S. government was sending out checks to people as welfare checks for all kinds of reasons. And There were arguments on both sides, but a lot of the uh, stronger arguments said, well, this may be causing people to not go to work because they can get money for not going to work. So then there was this big push to make tax credits so that refundable tax credits, even if you didn't make any money, if you had a certain, you know, if you have kids, then you get paid money in your tax refund. Well, now they've converted this tax credit and that there was a bit of a coup there in that Republicans... It's really hard for Republicans to say no to lowering taxes or tax credits in general. This is a good thing. Taxes should be lower, according to the Republicans. The Democrats are like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're going to spend whatever we want anyway. So it's not, I'm being equally mean to both parties here. Don't don't think I'm one or the other. I'm not. I find them. Uh, I, I think the motivation is silly here. But anyway, this coup happened and they said, all right, we're going to lower taxes and get rid of welfare. By lowering taxes, we mean giving credits to people for certain things. Okay, so come forward to today, and now we're going to be sending monthly checks out for your refundable tax credit. On your Note that that was an earned income tax credit. You actually had to work to get that money. Uh, for, for which money? What are you talking the about? The child, child tax credit. You actually had to have earned income in the family. No, that's, the, that the, ta- that's, a, different, that's a different tax credit. Um, this is a refundable tax credit. This is, that means it's not earned. Um, so 
it it's, should be earned, and it's something that a lot of people do earn it. The vast majority of the people that are going to get this tax credit did earn it. Uh, they did actually make money and put it into the taxes. Um, until 2021, the credit was $2,000 per child up to age 17. And then from age 17, you just didn't get a credit even though the kid was still living with you. I don't know why that is because they don't vote yet. They're not in college. But logic has nothing to do with taxes. So just throw that out the door. Okay, so it's $2,000 a child under age 17 based on the age at the end of the previous year because that's how everybody measures their age, right? Well, if you're at the IRS, it is. Uh, So for 2021 only, Congress increased the tax credit to $3,000 for children aged 6 to 17 and $3,600 for children under age six. Okay, so increase the tax credit. Are there limits based on income? On the low end, there used to be limits. This is what you were talking about. You had to earn it. For this year, they've been removed. So there's no, it doesn't have to be earned income. There are, on the low ends, um, Households that didn't owe income taxes could get up to $1,400 of the $2,000 before. This year, they can get the full credit even if they have no income. Okay. On the upper end of the income, some limits are still in place. The expanded portion of the credit starts phasing out once your income reaches $112,500 for heads of household and $150,000 for a married couple. So the... The rich number changes depending on what portion of the tax law it is. But in this case, if you're making more than $150,000 between two people at your house for married couples, there's a base $2,000 credit that happens to them. And then it phases out uh, once income reaches $200,000 for individuals and $400,000 for married couples, it it phases out beyond that. So it's $2,000 if you're making more than $150,000 a year. Okay, so starting July 15th, that's going to be broken out for the rest of the the year from July, August, September, every 15th of the month. um, They'll be making payments to people that have kids. Uh, How big will the payments be? It'll be one-twelfth of the annual credit, but it's starting in July so that you should still get half of the annual credit at the time of your refund. It's nothing like making this simple. This is such a simple thing, you know, not at all simple. But if you start receiving money from the IRS starting next month because you have kids, it's intended. Um, why is the government making monthly payments? Because the theory, the concept, is that it'll be more effective in helping parents and children if they have the money each month rather than waiting for a big f- for their tax return and then going and spending it all at once. So it's kind of a form of extended stimulus. This was a big debate among economists and, and folks that, in, in Congress uh, between the different type of stimulus pa- plans during the global financial crisis. That's what economists call the Great Recession, by the way, GFC. It's the GFC. If you just drop that in your jargon, people will think immediately that you know something because you can say acronyms. No, they'll, they'll probably think you don't know anything because they don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So 
when the Bush stimulus went out during the Great Recession, it, w- it was sent out as a check, one check. When the Ob- Obama stimulus went out, it was a less amount coming out in, tex- in taxes per month because they said that if you got it incrementally, you were more likely to spend it on the normal things that you spend things on. So this is still based on that concept, is that maybe they'll spend it better instead of blowing it all in February through April on whatever they're doing and then not having anything left the rest of the year. So this is a little bit of a manipulation by Congress to get people to spend it more responsibly. Will it reduce tax refunds? And this is kind of the big thing. It will. Because if you were expecting to get this all in one big check and you got parts of it before, the big check is going to be smaller because of all the little checks you got. And most people aren't actually going to get checks. It's going to be in their bank. But it's just easier to talk about checks instead of electronic fund transfers. Let's talk about EFTs when we're talking about... No, no. So we're just going to call them checks for now, even though they're not really checks. Just like we call them dollars, even though they're not made out of paper. How's that? EFTs? Yeah, electronic fund transfers. Oh, okay. Yeah, there's another acronym. You can just drop that in your conversation and people go, ooh, are you talking about ETFs or EFTs? Go ahead. You could have an EFT going into your ETF. Exactly. No, you could have an ETF going into your ETF. Anyway. Yeah, your EFT is going in monthly into your ETF. Yes. Unless it's going in bi-monthly. And then you really sound like you know what you're talking about. Anyway, that, that's the thing I wanted to talk about. This is coming up next month, and people are going to start receiving money strangely and likely are going to say, what is this? It's money. That's what it is. By the way, an interesting event, and we, we talked about it a little bit. It hasn't made much news, but the short out, out of to about six months, the treasuries that are out there are trading in a negative yield, and it's starting to hurt the money market funds, and the Fed has been asked to look into that. And if you've got money in a money market fund, you see what low returns you're getting there. Even with the low returns you're getting there, in many cases, the companies that run money market funds are losing money and having to put money from the parent company back into the money market fund. I don't think there's any danger in the money market funds at this point. But it's an interesting fact. If we don't get interest rates up, and one of the reasons the market responded, the economy responded positively to the news that the Fed might be raising interest rates at some point, is short-term interest rates actually do need to go up a little bit. Otherwise, money market funds are going to be in deep trouble. And we're about out of time. Well, we're getting close to out of time, not quite. a little wrap-up? Good to do a wrap-up at about this point. Well, we had a little drop in the market, but it was caused probably because of technical issues rather than anything to do with the economy, even though the news media credited to the economy. and But the market is within 1.9% of its all-time high, the S&P 500, which is a good sign. Um, the Dow dropped more than the NASDAQ, which is very unusual, um, which indicates that we had an unusual event on Friday called Triple Witching Hour. Did you call it Triple Witching? It should be called Triple Witching Day. Well, it's the the final part of the day when most of the volatility occurs, and they call it yeah. triple. It's kind of like having a happy hour at your restaurant that lasts for five hours. Yeah. Well, wait, which hour is the happy one? All five of them. They're all a, they're all happy hour. But the threat of inflation is gradually disappearing. At least the bond market believes, which is where you really want to go to find out if the inflation is a serious issue. 
bond market suggests the threat of future high inflation is going away pretty quickly. And the economy is going like, I use the term gangbusters, although that probably is a lot dated at this point. It's going very, very strongly. It has a lot of momentum. There's a lot of cash behind it. There's a shift going on from, uh, even though retail spending dropped slightly, it only dropped a little bit, and it dropped a little bit largely because you can't buy cars and trucks, at least on new ones. And people want to, so they're waiting. And the other thing is that people are shifting over to services, and if you've been to a restaurant recently, you understand what I mean by they shifting over to services. The economy is shifting gears to get back to normal, and it's doing very, very well. And we're about out of time. It's good news out there. If you'd like to contact us off the air, you can call us locally at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's contact us form there. You can uh, email us directly at jeff or jake at tpwc.com. Until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.